the Saudis have a particular need to work with the Russians to keep the price of oil stable or their whole development plan goes out the window. So I think the United States also needs to, just as it has discussed alternative plans to provide energy to Europe in the case of a disruption over Ukraine, if we were to demand that the Saudis take a big economic hit to damage the Russian economy by, uh, by bringing down the price of oil, we would have to have a serious conversation with them about how we're going to help them manage the blow to their economic plans. It's, it's otherwise, we're just not caring about them at all. You know, we, we have those kind of relations with the Western European powers, right? We have the, that kind of relationship with all the NATO powers, including Turkey. These countries do what they want and do what they need to do. And they have independent policies. But in the end, we're all on the same side on the biggest picture issues. And that's the arrangement we need to uh, develop with our Gulf Arab friends. And there's no reason why we can't. It's, it's perfectly straightforward. By the way, we have that relationship with Israel too. But we don't have it with uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE because I, I think Americans have been used to thinking of them as protectorates or as very obnoxious members of Congress put it after October 5th, client states, you remember that. Right? Very obnoxious, very insulting. Right, well, they're not client states. If they ever were, they're certainly not now. And there is no obstacle to having excellent partnership with countries that are more you know, independent of our influence than these countries have been in the past. And that has benefits as well as costs to, to the United States. It's, it's, in the end, it's a more healthy relationship, frankly. It's a good thing. Uh, I, I really think if we ma all manage it properly, we'll all be much better off. This is the 966. This is the 966, episode 71. Hello, Richard. How are you? We're just, we're just, just clamoring. We're kicking down the door on 2023. This, yep. So this is our second one in 2023, right? Yeah. Yep. And awesome. Really been good. Well, and we've got a really good show this week, Richard. We are not going to do one big things this week because we're very excited to jump right in with our conversation with Hussein Ibish, a weekly columnist for Bloomberg and the National based out of the United Arab Emirates. Um, it's really good. And you and I just made a sort of executive decision here. We want to jump right into it because it's just so good. Indeed. Uh, Hussein, Hussein is someone we track and follow, I mean, both on Twitter and also he's a regular feature and being cited in our Sustig uh, Review newsletter. Mm -hmm. uh, really, you know, sort of comprehensively informed and, and what I really appreciate, really clear-eyed in his analysis. Yeah, I like that, comprehensively informed. And a lot of these issues are sort of, that we talk about, sort of weave together perfectly. And right. he does such a good job at that, um, that we just are going to jump right into that. But stay tuned. After the interview, we will be doing our segment, uh, our Yella segment, uh, Top Storylines in Saudi Arabia this week. But we'll be back with a full show next week and jump in right now to our conversation with Hussein Yabish. We are delighted to be speaking now with Hussein Ibish, senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, weekly columnist for Bloomberg and The National, and is also a regular contributor to many other U.S. and Middle Eastern publications. Hussein, thank you for joining us again. Welcome back. Nice to see you. Thanks, uh, Lucian and Richard. I really appreciate it. 
It's uh, we're delighted to have you back, Hussein. We you were part of a, a troika of analysts that joined us after President Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia yep. this summer, uh, and uh, just a lot of good feedback and commentary. People uh, thought that insight was really useful. Great. And we always, you know, as as everyone knows, we we do the Sustic Review, which is a daily newsletter. We frequently draw on your commentary and your analysis. Mm-hmm. We believe, I think Lucian will back this up 100%. It's it's some of the best out there. Yep. Thank you. Very informed, very clear-sighted. And, and what we wanted to do at the beginning of 2023 was sort of take a look at, we've, we've been through, I guess, what you might term a tumultuous quarter in terms of U.S.-Saudi yes. Uh, relations, you know, let's go back to October 5th when that OPEC plus meeting, when they decided to reduce uh, quotas, 2 million barrels a day. Um, Surprising, I guess, um, U.S. uh, policymakers and the administration and and, and, and a firestorm ensued. Yep. Um, You've written a whole series of excellent, excellent pieces in Bloomberg, uh, Arab Gulf states, the national and maybe if you can set a baseline for us, is let, let's start with that event and why, why, and you've written an article, I'll just take your article that you, you published in American Gulf States, why the U.S.-Saudi crisis is so bad and so unnecessary. So let's set, set a baseline there. Let's use um, past tense because right. it, it's, it was, because there isn't a crisis anymore. We, we, right. The crisis has passed. Now, a lot of people don't realize this because... Uh, it's quiet, it's behind the scenes, it's under the hood, but the crisis is not uh, in the present tense. It could easily become in the present tense again, but it, it's past. So why was there a crisis? Well, basically because the uh, Saudi Arabia has constructed its existentially necessary, non-postponable economic transformation plan on uh, it's sort of controlling and uh, and and stabilizing the uh, oil market so that it can have predictable revenues in the next few decades in order to do this. That's because this is a last chance for Saudi Arabia. They they haven't done it and since the forties when money started coming in the fifties. They really did not create a post-hydrocarbon viable economy. And unlike the other Gulf countries, which are effectively city-states or something similar to that, Saudi Arabia is actually a very big country geographically. It's a big country demographically. Already today, there are poor people in Saudi Arabia, Saudis, not, not uh, you know, expat laborers. I mean, actual Saudis who are, who are certainly not well off at all. And, uh, you know, they need they have another few decades of oil money coming in and that's it. And so either they do it now or they don't do it. And if they don't do it, it's going to be a very tough road. So they really want to do this. And they, they built their plans uh, in terms of revenues around the OPEC plus agreement with Russia that um, they began in 2016. And then in 2020, they had a pricing and production war with Russia to basically determine dominance. And Saudi Arabia demonstrated that it was the dominant senior partner in this arrangement because it could do things that Russia couldn't with with its oil revenue. It it could shut on and off its oil wells without a prohibitive cost to restarting them. That wasn't true for Russia. All, All Russia could do was lie 
that they weren't producing oil when they were, <laughs> um, and that's what they did. But Saudi Arabia actually can turn it on and off. Um, if if Russia shut down its oil plants, most of them its oil fields, it's it's cost prohibitive to restart them. So it basically means and it's a water gas oil ratio and and it's it's boring and i barely understand it um the other thing saudi arabia could do that russia couldn't do is borrow money on advantageous terms right and and so with those two advantages it was able to quickly demonstrate that it was the key swing producer and russia essentially accepted grudgingly a secondary role so now we roll into October 5th of last year, right? You've got several things going on. The first thing is the Ukraine war and the United States really perceiving uh, Saudi Arabia's continued cooperation with Russia in the context of OPEC plus, OPEC being the Saudi-led original cartel and the plus being Russia and a couple of others. But it's really a Saudi-Russia uh, senior-junior partnership, right? Exactly as I expressed. That looked like Saudi Arabia siding with Russia against Ukraine from Washington's point of view. That was the first thing. Now, from Saudi Arabia's point of view, it looked like defending their oil interests. The U.S. thought it had an agreement with Saudi Arabia that they wouldn't intervene to raise the price of oil. Saudi Arabia thought, yeah, that that was true, but that they never promised not to intervene to prevent the price of oil from falling too far down. The U.S. position was that they should wait four to six weeks uh, and that that would be fine. And the Saudi position was that they couldn't wait and that if they did take that action, it wouldn't drive the price of oil up. The administration said they could wait and it would drive the price of oil up. The other thing, of course, was the midterms, because that four to six weeks was exactly, uh, you know, uh, congruent or chronologically uh, congruent with with the with the midterm calendar. So it, it had a lot to do with the fortunes of Democrats. Now, the reason that we passed that crisis relatively intact is first, the Saudis were right. Uh, We don't know. It's a counterfactual whether it would have been uh, damaging or not for the Saudis to wait. But we do know that on the one point that is testable, which is did the uh, the quota reduction uh, precipitate an increase in the price of petroleum at the, at the pump and at the commercial register? The answer is no. The Saudis were right. It didn't do that. Uh, so there was no reason for the U.S. to be upset about it in terms of um, the, the cost of petroleum in Europe and the United States. The second thing is that the Democrats did incredibly well in the midterm. So there's no blame game. Nobody started roaming the landscape looking for villains to blame. And the Saudis would have been there in the top five somewhere and they would have caught a lot of uh, heat from Democrats, especially in Congress. And But that didn't happen. So we passed that crisis. Then uh, we passed the next OPEC meeting, which was on December 4th. And they uh, OPEC plus continued the same quotas. And in this case, the administration was prepared for it and the Democrats were prepared for it. And they didn't have a problem with it because the Saudis had been proven correct. They didn't anticipate it would uh, lead to another oil surge in pricing, and it hasn't. And also, we've been very lucky that it's been a warm uh, winter in Europe, 
and there's been no oil crunch and, and LNG crunch and energy crunch in Europe. And the uh, uh, price cap on Russian oil seems to be holding and everything. All the balls are in the air right now. So everything's OK. Uh, and just before I forget, let me say Xi Jinping's visit to Riyadh. Uh, again, went very well for everybody. I mean, uh, basically, the Saudis got closer relations with China. China got closer relations with the Saudis. The Saudis did not cross any American red lines. The U.S. is 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 willing to let um, China and Gulf countries develop their relations, not only as producers and consumers of energy, but even as partners in things like infrastructure development and investment and Belt Road initiatives related stuff, as long as it doesn't give China a strategic foothold in the Gulf region, in the Red Sea, uh, with regards to the Suez Canal, Bab el-Mandab in the Red Sea, uh, the Strait of Hormoz. These are the red lines. So things like signals intel uh, regarding 5G uh, technology, Huawei. They did a, a Huawei contract, but it was for cloud computing. So that doesn't cross that red line. It it, it has to do with, with signals intel capability that could be baked into Chinese technology. Or some kind of infrastructure that could have dual use um, for, uh, uh, capabilities so that the Chinese could get a strategic foothold. As far as we can tell, none of the agreements crossed the red lines. So it went off okay. Now, at this point, uh, I think it's, it's pretty clear that everything is going much better between the US and Saudi after October 5th for all of those reasons. But I do have to say, we still have these pitfalls ahead of us because it remains the case that Washington would read U.S. Uh, Saudi-Russian cooperation to prop up the price of energy um, in the context of an energy crunch, especially in Europe, as siding with Russia against Ukraine. And that they still would read it that way. And that could happen. Uh, and the other thing is that it's still the case that um that this is that, that Saudi Arabia is really trying to assert its new role as a mid-level power and Washington's okay with that until it isn't you know <laughs> and so it's all going all right it almost went off the rails in October right and that until it didn't and everything is okay for now until it isn't and I hope that is clear. <laughs> no, it's 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 like Alice in Wonderland. Jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. Does it make sense? <laughs> Not really, but that's how it is. Uh, brilliant, Hussein. Honestly, that's that's as good a, a, a synopsis of of what unfolded and and how we might read it. Um, you you mentioned something that I think it was really important. You you specifically the term is kind of you know unusual but non-postponable and you're talking about the saudi perspective on what they what they're trying to achieve this i'm not going to call it tempest in a teapot because there are there are real uh issues although i think the media you know certainly magnified some of the things and as you pointed out there are underlying ties that enabled enabled the relationship to get, get through this and I think probably you may or may not agree, but the Biden administration, even though it sort of blew hard on certain aspects, really hasn't done anything to 
quote unquote, punish Saudi Arabia? Well, I, let me just say this. I mean, Biden promised a reevaluation and consequences, and there's been no reevaluation except insofar as to reconfirm the existing you know, relationship. And there have been no serious consequences. And that's because they realized that would be, you know, shooting yourself in the foot from the American point of view. There's nothing to gain. So, it's just and, the kind of thing you say to placate Congress. Correct. And but the important the thing I'm trying to get to, and maybe you have insights on, is there is no there was no there was no reevaluation. But has something been learned? Ah, oh, wow, that's a really interesting question, and you'd have to ask it on both sides. So I think in the f- from the point of view of the administration, I think the answer is yes. And I think there there are two things that have been learned. Number one, it was a lesson that has been learned since the Ukraine war began. And as every month has gone by since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think the understanding has simply deepened over time about how crucial a competitive advantage it is to the United States in dealing with um, global unrest uh, and global disorder and great power competition with China for the U.S. to have a a key security role in maintaining the security and stability of these key waterways, right? The, the Red Sea, the Arabian Sea, and the Gulf region, and the three choke points around the, the uh, Asian part of the Middle East, around Southwest Asia, that is the, the Suez Canal, Bab al-Mandab, in the Red Sea and the Strait of Hormuz. And the the U.S. needs to do this with partners, and the partners are precisely uh, the Gulf Arab countries, that Iran is not a potential partner um, because it is a revisionist anti-status quo power that agrees on virtually nothing with the United States, except maybe Al-Qaeda is bad, you know, it's just basic stuff. But, you know, their vision for the future is completely different. They're aligned with China, they're aligned with Russia, and uh, they they are uh, totally opposed to the status quo. We and the Gulf countries are quintessential status quo powers for different reasons. Uh, But the point is, our vision and their vision is largely compatible. Uh, Therefore, they are natural allies. And uh, the, the importance of this has been Uh, I think, increasingly realized by the national security establishment in the United States, including the Biden administration, which is why there's no rethinking and no consequences. And all of that was was um, red meat for the Democrats in um, well, in both the House and the Senate, unfortunately. Uh, At any rate, um, I think it is kind of an advantage for the Saudis to have a weak um, House majority for Republicans. And and a solid uh, democratic one in the Senate and and friends in the White House. I think this is all a good scenario from their point of view. Uh, frankly, um, the other thing that's been learned, I believe, is not to jump to conclusions about oil pricing. The Saudis might know something, right? They just assumed the Saudis were were full of it when they said there wouldn't be a price increase after October 5th. They just, I think they just thought a lot of them, a lot of Americans in, in these conversations thought, well, that's what they say because they want to do it. And we get why they want to do it, but it is going to be, it's going to have a bad impact. And and it didn't. And so now you have to reevaluate and say, well, maybe they know what they're talking about. Maybe they're not just blowing hot air. And that's another thing that's been learned. I, I'm a little more skeptical just because the evidence is not there yet, one way or the other, that the lessons have been learned in Riyadh. Uh, I I hope so. And I think the December 4th meeting suggests that there was definitely more coordination. 
between uh, Washington and Riyadh before that Octo- uh, OPEC plus meeting. However, given that they weren't going to do anything different and that the status quo was acceptable, it wasn't much of a test, right? It was, right. it wasn't a hurdle. It was like a little um, raisin box on the ground and <laughs> to jump over <laughs> a child's raisin box, you know, lunch, luncheons, right? Whatever. Uh, so it wasn't really much of a test. The, the other thing you, you, you have to ask is, um, I think they were they were smart the Saudis in how they handled Xi Jinping, right? They they didn't do anything to alienate the United States. They kept it all going. So that that indicates uh, an intelligent approach to build relations with China without alienating um, Washington is is a tricky thing, and they did it well. Now, the harder part is not that. The harder part is how do they manage continuing to assert their role as a kind of junior brick, as a kind of a mid-level, regional, and even to some extent, global power, which is how they see themselves, Mm -hmm. and without alienating Washington. And that's harder. So we're going to have to watch how they do that, because that requires a lot of uh, agility. And uh, Saudi Arabia is just a beginner when it comes to this kind of thing. Uh, it, it's it's an old state in a lot of ways, but it's not a state that's played that kind of role regionally and certainly not globally in the past. And, uh, you know, you could see how they made a mistake the first time they tried to project major amount of power, military power outside of their um, outside of their borders in the region in Yemen. They got mm-hmm. sucked into a quagmire and now they're stuck and the Houthis won't let them go. And they're just holding on to their ankle and refusing to let them leave. Absolutely refusing, uh, because they're enjoying slowly torturing them, <laughs> and um, and and they think they can get more on the battlefield. But the point is that, you know, the Saudis are new to a lot of this. So hopefully they are quick learners, and we need to, you know, we'll we'll all find out sooner rather than later, I guess. That's a that's a fascinating observation. It's something we've talked about on the nine six six, and this is the Saudi. You know, you you reference middle power, and we talked we've talked yeah. in the past on on the nine six six on how um, the Ukraine invasion, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, you know, has brought to the fore this fundamental difference in understanding of how they want the world to work. You know, they want a multipolar yeah. world. They want to have to have relationships, but also, um, you know, they ticked over into a trillion dollar economy this year. Um, you know, they may fall back, mm-hmm. but they're now a trillion dollars. So they are, they're, they're, they're firmly in that middle power, you know, 10, oh, they're a 10, big deal, 10 yeah. to 20 in global GDP, you know, national GDP. Absolutely. And, and so if they want to behave differently, you know, obviously over the last 18 months or so, Mohammed bin Salman has done significantly more diplomatic outreach, travel to Turkey, Egypt, EU states. Um, so it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an evolving relationship. Now, you have talked about, uh, and I'll, I'll quote you to yourself, which, uh, you know, forgive us, but in, in one of your articles, um, and it was the one you did for Bloomberg when you were talking about the, the ocean, uh, the, you yeah. know, Navy's AI. Maritime surveillance. You know, uh, yeah. Digital ocean, right. yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. you say, uh, by clarifying exactly how the Carter Doctrine functions in the 21st century and what types of threats would trigger U.S. military responses, Saudi Arabia and its neighbors need to know when exactly the U.S. will step in to defend them. Yeah. Well, this remains an unanswered question, and it's a it's a problem in the relationship because um, while 
the relationship maybe never was exactly oil for security. That's certainly how it was perceived in the United States. And there was an element of that in, in the Gulf as well, right? And it, it really was kind of defined in terms of the Carter Doctrine, where uh, the Gulf countries were assumed to be cooperative on energy pricing with the United States and uh, in, with the West in general, and that the United States was committed in the in the immediate aftermath of the Iranian Revolution, the real threat that um, radical fundamentalist um, uh, Iran was posing to the region at the time, and still does, um, that the United States committed uh, under Carter in 1980 to to, to an, uh, intervene, if necessary militarily, it, to any external force threatening the region. And, and what really that meant in practice, and it was understood on all sides, to really mean that if there were an invasion of a Gulf country um, by uh, another country, by uh, Iran, by Russia, by whoever else, anyone else, uh, that the United States would intervene to preserve the status quo. And in fact, it got tested in, in 1990. In, in August of 1990, indeed, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and the United States intervened in, in 1991, January 91, after that, Desert Storm, liberated Kuwait, but stopped at the Iraqi border very wisely, uh, did not go further and just said, okay, we carried out the UN Security Council mandate. We have uh, repelled the invasion. This is exactly how the Carter Doctrine was imagined, right? The threat was imagined as a kind of mechanized punch into the oil fields or the cities or both of the Gulf countries by some foreign threat, Iraq, Iran, Russia, somebody else, <laughs> um, and the United States intervening to stop that. Right now, this is a very 20th century notion of of threat to Gulf security. Right, this is this is this is very 1980s, 90s, uh, that kind of thing. Now, the the threats are not conceptualized as Saddam's mechanized divisions or any equivalent from any other country. It's thought of in terms of drone and missile attacks from Iran or its proxies like the Houthis, in terms of cyber warfare, in terms of next generation sabotage, the kind of stuff you started to see at a very low level, but you could really ratchet it up at a high level um, that you started to see from Iran during the campaign of maximum resistance. You know, after a year of maximum pressure under Trump, in the last year of the Trump administration you really saw a lot of uh, sabotage and culminated in the Iranian missile attack on Abqaiq and Khores, the Saudi oil, uh, Aramco oil fields that knocked production offline for like a week and, uh, you know, could have even been worse, but demonstrated Iran's um, growing capability in, in not just missile and drone rocket technology. Uh, this was not the Houthis. Anyone who bought that for a second was silly. And, and I think we've known for years that it wasn't the Houthis. It was Iran. Um, and it was a great demonstration of, of precision and hyper-precision guidance. Mm -hmm. Because I, as I understand it, uh, one or two missiles failed to strike their targets out of about 30 or 32. Uh, they were they were very precise. They hit in the middle of the night. They knew where to hit. They knew what to hit, and they hit with precision. And this was very alarming. So you already have this Iranian missile threat, which is overwhelming. And you take a country like the UAE, 
Um, of all of Iran's foes, the UAE is uniquely vulnerable because it has no strategic depth, none, none at all. Right, a few missiles on on uh, Burj Al Khalifa or some big buildings in Dubai or something like that, or in Abu Dhabi, and the whole model, the whole structure is mm. messed up. You know, it may be Humpty Dumpty. It would be really hard yeah. to to address that. <laughs> Saudi Arabia has some strategic depth because of its geographical uh, size and the number of cities and things like that. Israel has a kind of strategic depth because of its nuclear arsenal, its deter its own deterrence, and it may well be a second strike deterrence. It may well have um, submarine capable nuclear weapons mm -hmm. on the German Dolphin submarines. We don't know that for sure. They kind of hint at that, but it could be, you know, it could be lying. It's it's very hard to know, I, You, but don't bet against it because they may well have that capability. And that is another kind of virtual strategic depth, right? UAE has no strategic depth. So all these countries are very vulnerable, but especially UAE. And uh, then all of them are very vulnerable to cyber attacks, to all these things that we're talking about. So, the, it, But because some of them have gone answered, and some of them have gone unanswered by the United States, like Abkeq and Khurez, Trump's reaction was, hey, no Americans died. I'm not doing anything. There's one report in the Wall Street Journal that said that uh, U.S. offered a joint uh, counterattack and the Saudis wouldn't do it. I, I, I'm afraid I don't believe it. Uh, everything else cuts in the other direction. It, it just doesn't scan. I think that's wrong. I, I don't know who put that out for what reason, but I don't believe it. I think it's very clear. Trump just said, America first. I'm not interested. And, uh, you know, that I think that was a shock to the Saudis. And I think it was an inflection point for them in terms of doubling down, tripling down on strategic diversification. And so what it means is we still have the Carter Doctrine. And I think it's still the case that if mechanized divisions rolled into an oil field or, or a capital city of a Gulf country, the U.S. would respond the way it did, you know, in 1990. I really I think that's clear. But that's not what's keeping Gulf leaders up at night, right? And so they don't know when we're going to respond. Uh, it, you know, counter to the Abkhaz and Khores thing under Trump, under Biden, after his visit, we saw Iran uh, producing a credible threat to attack Saudi Arabia, uh, probably in order to divert attention from the domestic unrest. And the U.S. response, the Biden administration response, was to scramble a, a bunch of jets a squadron of, I think, F-22s. I'm not sure. We don't really know, but I think it was F-22s, if you ask me, uh, and do aggressive overflights on the uh, Iranian border to send a very clear message that uh, don't you dare, don't even think about it. And the Iranians backed down, it worked, you know. So we've seen, you know, we, we have a, this very mixed record of responding and not responding to present generation threats. And that's why I think it would be extremely important to keep Saudi Arabia and uh, above all the UAE on side uh, to clarify what the Carter Doctrine means in the 21st century. We knew what it meant in 1980, 1990, 2000. What does it mean in 2023? I don't think anyone's sure. I think that's a problem. And it's a it's a tremendous, it's a monumental challenge because we're talking about, you referenced them, we're talking about gray war tactics. 
cyber mm-hmm. drones, um, things that are sub, uh, you know, sub below what might be a, a traditionally observed threshold of of an act of war. Casus um, belli, right? Yeah, and 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 a lot of them are deniable, right? Right. They say, well, we didn't attack Abkhaz. That might have been the Houthis. It could have been the PMFs. Who knows? Right. Maybe it was a false flag operation by you guys. Who can say? You know, I mean, it's all that sort of. Uh, nothing is real and everything could be true kind of thing. And that, yeah, that's the world we live in. It's not, you know, World War II or, uh, or, or 1980, summer of 1980. It's not. So you do point in, in I mean, sorry, summer, summer of 1990. Right. Excuse me. Um, you do point to the, the, the critical uh, choke points uh, in the region. Yeah. And, and you have written about this digital ocean project, which is a Navy yeah. project. Yeah. Uh, is that something that's consequential and meaningful to our Gulf allies, Gulf partners? Highly. Hi- oh, I think highly. And I think that the fact that it's not better known is really unfortunate. It's uh, Task Force 59 was created basically by the Fifth Fleet uh, commanders in Bahrain. And it, it has put together a bunch of different programs. Digital Ocean was one a big exercise. There have been others in the Red Sea. Uh, the Arabi and in the Gulf. And um, what it does, it's it's a really remarkable technology. About 16, 17 months ago, uh, there was a breakthrough in technology uh, in terms of drone, unmanned unmanned systems, right? Surveillance systems. Um, because we've had for a long time aerial drones. There's nothing new about that. Uh, and for several decades, we've had uh, submarine drones, underwater drones, right? Surveillance stuff. What became possible about 17 months ago or so was surface level unmanned systems. Right? That's new. That really didn't exist before. So now you have the possibility and indeed the reality of a an integrated task force of different unmanned systems uh, on the surface of the water, above, in the air, and under the water, creating a uh, a kind of a constantly updated real-time 3D map of everything that's moving in a limited uh, maritime area. And uh, the first place this is being rolled out is in the Gulf. And by the end of this summer, uh, what uh, the Fifth Fleet and Task Force 59, which has many partners now, uh, wants to do is to have a hundred surface unmanned systems at any given time operating at the surface of the Gulf itself, plus I don't know how many underwater and uh, and aerial, so that uh, this system of systems can basically track everything that's moving uh, on in the waters of the Gulf. And it becomes possible to do this using artificial intelligence because you get this unbelievable tsunami of data, uh, you know, every, every 10 seconds pouring in, right? It can't be dealt with by humans. But artificial intelligence can weed out what is expected and interpretable and understandable from the data versus something that seems unexpected, something that seems inexplicable or dangerous or, or hits a red flag. At that point, um, automatically, 
other systems under underwater drones, aerial drones are brought in to get more data beyond the surface level data. And uh, human operators are brought in to evaluate this data from the surface level drones and also the unmanned systems above the air and, and underwater. All of this is happening in real time. Um, you're using satellites, including Elon Musk's fancy satellites, if we get even faster. The American, what they, they, what they want of this hundred um, unmanned systems on the, on the surface level at any given time, they want 20% to be American, 80% uh, local Gulf or French and British, who are the other two. Um, uh, cooperative. Um, they're going to roll it out very soon also in the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea. There, I think you might find Israel participating, Egypt certainly participating, and other countries as well, Saudi definitely. Um, and again, there's going to be an emphasis on burden sharing. So it's American technology mainly, but um, the cost and the manpower is going to be borne by others as well. And the U.S. is kind of coordinating this. So what's interesting is the uh, American human operators are going to be in San Francisco. <laughs> and they're going to be doing <laughs> real-time surveillance of the waters of the Gulf, the Arabian Sea, the Red Sea from San Francisco. And it's going to be in real time. And yeah, this is a major breakthrough. Of course, it's of interest to these countries because uh, their bread and butter is maritime security. One of the biggest threats Iran has held over the region for a long time is the idea that they would blockade uh, the Strait of Hormuz. And they have many plans to do it in different ways. There are lots of plans by the U.S. and its allies to counteract that and open it up in a week or two weeks or something like that, which would be a huge disruption. But, you know, a week is a lot better than a month or two months, what have you. And obviously the aim, uh, Sun Tzu style, is to prevent it from ever happening in the first place and to win without fighting that battle. And the more surveillance you have in real time, the, the easier it is to forestall any such threat. It's also an anti-piracy threat. It's an anti-smuggling threat. It's an anti uh, it's a way of, of, of keeping track of what's going on. It's very important to the countries of the Gulf. The other thing that's worth saying is we have been, the United States have been unsuccessful for about 20 years in trying to convince the GCC countries, the Gulf countries to integrate their air and missile defenses, right? They, they don't wanna do it. And I think one of the reasons is when you're talking about air and missile defense, you're talking about decisions that have to be made in very short order. You don't have a lot of time. The missiles are coming in. You got 20 seconds, one minute, two minutes. And so when you do that integration, you're basically going to be surrendering some of your sovereignty and your sovereign um, authority to a collective body. And I think there's a real reticence to do that. These are newly independent states, most of them. A lot of them you know, came into existence in the 70s and uh or that they haven't had a lot of experience with this stuff and they're just there's a lack of willingness to do that kind of thing and frankly a lack of trust so you haven't had a willingness to do that when it comes to maritime security your reaction time window is a lot less immediate 
there's a lot more time to think about it. You you would at least have a couple hours. You know, you would, it's, I mean, unless you're talking about a torpedo, you know, you're really talking about movement of vessels and you might not have a long time to talk about it, but it's certainly like, not like an incoming missile coming from Southern Iran, you know, right. into the UAE, which would be no time at all or into Northern Saudi Arabia or Dahran. Um, so I think it's, it's been a lot more saleable to say, let's integrate our maritime security systems. And so for that reason, uh, just being very blunt with you, um, I think it's proven a, a better, easier sell. Let's talk about that air and missile defense system, because as you say, it's been sort of a, you know, a, some, a hope for thing, certainly from the U.S. side. We had a fascinating conversation last episode with Dr. Abdulaziz Al-Ghashayan, a Saudi scholar, on, yeah. on normalization. And yep. specifically Israel and the region and the Abraham Accords. And you, you're well aware of this. You know, there's been this excitement sort of a part, especially on uh, on supporters of Israel and, and people who want to see Israel uh, reintegrated into the region. Uh, a sense that somehow this uh, anti-Iran, you know, they, they, you know, the Gulf states in general, Saudi Arabia and others, you know, share a, a awareness of Iran. You know, the, mm -hmm. the fact that Israel could bring technology to an air and, and, and uh, missile defense shield. Um, and now yeah. we see that Israel, obviously, you know, Netanyahu is back as, as prime minister and it's a, it's yeah. a far right cabinet. Um, where does Israel fit into this and does it does it matter? Is it critical? Uh, let me give the Israelis good news and bad news. <laughs> Let me start with the bad news. The bad news is that the new government, that it was, okay, Netanyahu has come back and he has said one of his key foreign policy priorities, mm -hmm. along with, you know, preventing Iran from developing a nuclear weapon, is starting to formally normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. Now, that was a long shot already. The um, conditions for that were a lot riper two years ago than they are today. I think Israelis often think that time is on their side and everything just keeps becoming more propitious for them and uh, Arab countries become more and more interested. That's not true, right? It's a commodity. And the price of gold goes up and the price of gold goes down and the price of normalization with Israel has gone up. And, uh, you know, what they what they would be expected to do is a lot more today than it was a couple of years ago. And that's just that's a fact for really complicated reasons. So it was already a long shot. But I think the behavior uh, and rhetoric of this Israeli government about annexation, about the exclusive right of the Jewish people to rule and settle all of Eretz Israel, which uh, clearly means not just Israel, but all the occupied territories as well, um, and certainly the West Bank and East Jerusalem, is is making it extremely difficult for Saudi Arabia to contemplate anything like this. And I do not think the Saudis are likely to do it. One of the reasons is they already get a lot of what they need from the Israelis, Anyway, there's under the table cooperation, intelligence cooperation in Jordan. Israel does what Israel does anyway for its own interests regarding Hezbollah in Syria and, and countering it in Lebanon, regarding the PMF groups in Iraq and uh, the shadow war that they're having with Iran over the nuclear issue, um, you know, with sabotage, assassinations, cyber attacks, Stutniks, whatever else it might be, all these mysterious fires and explosions in Iran. 
All of this is very useful to Saudi Arabia. They have nothing to do with it. But Israel's going to do it anyway. So in effect, there's no need for the Saudis to do this. They they have a lot less of an interest than the UAE did. In addition, they have this global Arab leadership role that they don't really want, but they've had to adjust to doing because there's no one else. And uh, a Islamic leadership role that they do want. And they fought for for decades, and they get harassed by Iran, by even by Turkey, by Malaysia, Indonesia, Pakistan, and some combination of those. And they have to fight for that. And and so the price is high. And when you've got Ben Gvir marching around the uh, Haram al-Sharif, uh, but now he's a minister. And the last time an Israeli minister did that was when Ariel Sharon went up there with Ben Gvir's friends, as well as a heavily armed mob of Israeli whatever soldiers or whoever they were border guards and and armed settlers and basically did the same kind of we own this routine uh it started off a series of confrontations that degenerated as the Mitchell report explains into the second intifada which went on for five years and killed about four thousand palestinians three and a half thousand palestinians and about a thousand israelis most of them civilians on both sides and it was a catastrophe and so obviously you're looking at a group of people who do that on the first week they're in office. Yeah. They don't wait, they can't wait but to go there and create chaos. And uh, what else are they gonna do? Uh you don't know. So, you know, yeah, I, I think the chances of Netanyahu wooing the Saudis into some open uh, arrangement are are very, very weak if this is the kind of government he's going to um, be part of. Now, if he were to dump these people, I mean, I think I think the real benefit of these fanatics, uh, religious fanatics and ultranationalist fanatics, they're not the same. Ben Gvir is an ultranationalist fanatic. Smotrich and the others are religious fanatics, whatever. They're all fanatics. So they're complete fanatics. So Ben Gvir is a Kach guy, a Kahanid, Kahane guy, he's basically a Jewish supremacist, or you know, kind of like a, I mean, uh, it's almost like that guy they cut out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Otto the Jewish Nazi. He's almost like that, you know. But anyway, the point is that uh, Ben Gvir is the kind of guy who is going to cause a lot of problems, and so will the others. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think even the UAE tried to embrace Ben Gvir initially. And they had this meeting with him and, and photo ops and everything. I think they were hoping to send the message that, look, we want to work with you. Well, you know what? They're not going to be posing with pictures with him anymore. And they issued a very strong statement uh, when uh, Ben Gvir did that. It makes life very difficult. Um, so for those reasons, I just don't see Saudi Arabia uh, joining the Abraham Accord band, bandwagon anytime soon. Now, Netanyahu needs these people I think, as a cudgel against the judiciary. And he's hoping to get out of them. He's hoping to give them some annexation stuff, maybe, or some uh, Orthodox Jewish supremacism against uh, non-Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox, um, especially the Reformed Jews, including most American Jews, give them some kick in the behind on behalf of these people, which is weird because Netanyahu himself is not a religious. He's just sort of basically a secular right-wing guy. Uh, but, you know, I don't think he cares. Um, so as long as what he what he wants out of them is to get a law that prohibits him or protects him from being prosecuted for corruption as long as he's prime minister. And ideally, 
to use them as a cudgel against the judiciary in general to get out of these corruption charges that he faces. In my view, as soon as he got out of the of the corruption issue, he would get on the phone with Benny Gantz in like two minutes and start trying to figure out a way of getting rid of these people uh, and getting into an alliance with Gantz and others. And what you need to understand about uh, Bibi, he hates being the liberal in his own coalition, right? <laughs> liberal in quotes, right? And right now, it's hard. It's hard for Netanyahu to be the liberal. It has happened. He hates it. Now he's the leftist liberal compared he's, to the, these, these guys. He's a dove. And he hates that. So I think he would look for the earliest opportunity to dump them. But as long as he's facing, you know, serious corruption charges, he probably needs them. And uh, as long as they're around, forget about Saudi Arabia. There's just no chance. So let's let's return to the uh, the Saudi U.S. relationship. And let's, mm. let's, let's no, there's something to... else I should say. I, I almost forgot something. Yeah, it's very important. Uh, in terms of air and missile defense, yeah, Israel can play a, a big role, by the way. If 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 they stop playing these ridiculous ultranationalist games, they could. Mm-hmm. And I want to point something out to you. After the um, deadly Houthi missile attacks la- a year ago, in last January, in Abu Dhabi, after a long negotiation, Israel eh, sold or installed or put for a price the early warning radar system part of Iron Dome. They wouldn't sell the whole of Iron Dome to to anyone, Ukraine or anybody, but they did, I guess they sold it to somebody, but but not, not, uh, maybe they didn't, I guess not. Anyway, they they did uh, give the UAE and Bahrain the early warning radar system. And there is, we don't know the details. I I don't know the details and no one I've met knows the details or who would tell me. And I, you know, this includes serving ambassadors and they don't know the details. There is some kind of cooperation. There's some kind of information sharing triangle between Banana, Abu Dhabi and, uh, and Israel going on here in terms of the of the information. I don't know if it can be cut off. I don't know who controls the tap. I don't know what terms there are. I don't know anything about it. But I do know that it's the first major chip in the wall of resistance to integrating air and missile defense ideas. It, in other words, it's proving that they're liking it. The UAE <laughs> is liking it. Bahrain is liking it. The Israelis are liking it. And, uh, you know, if you could get to the point where the Israelis would stop doing this, you know, ultra-nationalist, quasi-apartheid thing with the Palestinians and and uh, also playing with Jewish fundamentalism. Can you imagine that the Arab world is dumping fundamentalism and now Israel is turning to Jewish fundamentalism? What a bizarre turn of events. But that's what's happening. Um, so the, fun- the Middle East fundamentalists are Shiites and, and Jewish Israelis, which is really weird. But anyway, that is the way it is right now, at least for the moment. And, you know, my point is, yeah, they could play a big role. And this is a model that could be expanded. But, you know, there is this little matter of annexation and and uh, settlement and behaving, you know, on the occupied you know, threat to the yeah. uh the the this the status quo agreement in jerusalem was set in the treaty of berlin in seven eighteen seventy one. 1871 right they're playing with something that's been you know 150 years and established it's not about israel and the palestinians it's not about 
it's very old and you you play with that at your peril and and it it's not it's not um it's a very very dangerous game um on the uh, that that's thank you Hussein that's that's a real addition to the the conversation um and I think it puts it in a context the 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 difference you know how the Israelis look at this and and the Gulf states look at this on the on the U.S. Saudi relationship, and we're, we, we're, I'm not going to ask you to prognosticate for 2023 because that's sort of impossible, as you Can't said, do it. as you already, you already referenced the through the looking glass aspect of all of this. Yeah. Um, but you know, October 5th, it's clear; it became clear, it became apparent to everybody. There's you know significant levels of miscommunication in the relationship, right. significant uh, deficit of trust in the in the relationship, big time. You know, there's as you say, there's been some. The, progress and meaningful progress. Well, we also saw in July when Biden was in uh, Jeddah uh, for two days with the Saudis and then and then the uh, GCC plus three meeting um, that there was a personal disconnect, a real palpable coldness between Biden and Mohammed bin Salman. Mm. So that's an issue when the American president has so much power invested in one person and Saudi Arabia is a, a very um, uh, has a very centralized uh, and autocratic system at the moment, where the crown prince and the king make the decisions. So, under these circumstances, personal right uh, discomfort is an issue. Um, and so we have that. So we need to we're starting at a low threshold. Yes. Um, what would you like to see? What do you think would be appropriate and helpful in terms of the U.S.? Uh, you know, if you mentioned the 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 uh, task force 50, 59. 59. Mm-hmm. fifty nine. I don't know if this is meaningful, but fifty nine is the is the designation in the military for planners. But well, it may be a, a coincidence. Well, I believe there's also a, there's a task force thirty nine and a task force seventy nine as well. I mean, yeah, it, it, like Air I Force said, it, Air Force has one. I mean, and and the a US total is, coincidence. U.S. is also closely involved with the Saudi military and trying to yeah. remake and revamp or professionalize that whole sure. organization. So it's there's significant involvement. Yeah, but uh, on the policy side and other things, you know what what's a responsible right. what's a responsible way for the to, to for the U.S. and the Saudis to continue to move forward? Okay, for the Saudis, the most important thing is to communicate with washington right this surprises are bad okay and and truly understand that yes you want to flex your muscles as a mid-level power fine do it without uh without risking the relationship with washington and try to tell the americans what you're going to do in advance that'll help a lot it helps a lot if people know what you're going to do remind them if it's about oil, that you were right last time, <laughs> that, you, that, that the American evaluation was wrong, the prices didn't go up, and everything was all right. And when the Saudis said everything was going to be all right, it was true. Remind them of that politely. Um, but, you know, don't, it's not worth the risk uh, to alienate Americans. There are still a lot of people in the Republican Party who are very angry with Saudi, in the, in, excuse me, in the Democratic Party who are very angry with Saudi Arabia, primarily over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but also uh, because of the Yemen war. And they they have developed an antagonism towards Saudi Arabia because they associated Saudi Arabia with Donald Trump. 
Uh, and and it's all just an emotional mess. Um, and it doesn't, it's not rational, but there it is. So they have to be very cognizant that there is a, um, uh, a very big constituency in the president's party that wants him to distance himself from them. So they need to take that into account. From the American point of view, I think uh, the, the not overreacting was the right thing to do. And, and I think, again, if we get into a situation where they feel, you know, very frustrated, uh, you know, not overreacting is really important. And again, I think communication is really the key. These are two countries, the United States and Saudi Arabia, have never loved each other. We don't share the same values. It's not that kind of a relationship. Uh, it's not a relationship based on uh, domestic political influence, like the relationship with Israel that's driven by uh, pro-Israel Jewish groups and increasingly also by evangelicals who are you know, into the second coming and uh, the kind of anti-Semitic philo-Israel groups, which is really weird, but there they are, and they're very powerful in the Republican Party. So the Saudis don't have anything like that, which makes them very vulnerable. But what it also means is that, again, this, and there's no sentiment the way there is about France, without which we wouldn't have gained independence from Britain, or about Britain, which for all the dispute with, you know, for all the discord in the, you know, in, in 1776 and 1812 is still the mother country, uh, you know, to a very large extent. And all of the NATO powers, which stood with the United States against the Soviet Union, there's a certain sentimentality. I mean, even towards Turkey, there's this notion that, you know, this is, you know, like a 70 year old ally that that risked a lot, you know, nuclear weapons and, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there they were in the in the in the middle of it, though, most people didn't know it at the time, but they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so there's a certain sentimentality. It's not there with Saudi Arabia. It's always been a kind of a transactional relationship, right? And it remains transactional, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But what it means is both sides need to be careful to keep up their their side of the bargain, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Saudis can't be perceived as uh, disregarding um American concerns about energy pricing. At the same time, they need to explain to the United States that they're not, you know, in a, in a more clear way, that what they're doing is protecting the funding for an existential project that cannot be postponed, right? That they can't take time off because of the Ukraine war. There is a fundamental gap in understandings about the Ukraine war between the West including Russia, all of which thinks it's a macro-historical turning point, right? The Russians think it in one way, uh, the Western alliance led by the United States sees it another way, but they all think everything is changing because of the Ukraine war and that everyone has to reevaluate because of the Ukraine war. Well, in Asia and Africa, that view is not shared. In the global South, they don't look at it that way. They, they see it as a nasty border conflict in far off Eastern Europe, that doesn't really involve them. And they don't see any need to reevaluate everything from zero to go back and restructure their whole foreign policy, their economic policies, their national strategies. I mean, if you look at the way India talks about Ukraine, very bluntly, as just something that's happening over there, and we're not interested in rethinking, we need Russian oil, we need this, we need that, and we're not going to you know, I mean, too bad about Ukraine. We think it's terrible, but you know what? Uh, we we got to go forward with 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 bringing 
uh, one and a half billion people or b- billion of them out of poverty. And that's what we're doing. And and yeah, don't, don't talk to us about about um, Ukraine is important, but it's not the be all and end all. It is for you, but it's not for us. And that's the way it is. And I think that point of view extends to the Middle East. It extends to Saudi. It extends to the UAE. You know what? It extends to Israel. Right. The Israelis were not comfortable. They they still they have not been. None of the key US military allies in, in the region have responded this way. The Israelis finally realized they had to do it and they've they pretended they're in, but they kept the door open to Moscow. Same with the with the UAE. But the uh Saudis have a particular need to work with the Russians to keep the price of oil stable or their whole development plan goes out the window. So I think the United States also needs to, just as it has discussed alternative plans to provide energy to Europe in the case of a disruption over Ukraine, if we were to demand that the Saudis take a big economic hit to damage the Russian economy by uh, by bringing down the price of oil, we would have to have a serious conversation with them about how we're going to help them manage the blow to their economic plans. It's it's otherwise we're just not caring about them at all. And I think in the long run, a a uh, uh, what's necessary is a recommitment to working with the United States on energy pricing from the Gulf countries and a recommitment, a, a clarification of what the Carter Doctrine does and doesn't mean in the 21st century. And I think we, we made a lot of progress in adjusting to uh, Saudi Arabia and even the UAE uh, emerging as kind of mid-level, in the case of Saudi global, in the case of UAE regional powers, that means more burden sharing. It has good, uh, it has a lot of positives to the United States. It means burden sharing. It means, uh, you know, their relations with China are disruptive of the Chinese-Iranian partnership, which is very helpful to the United States. It has a lot of benefits. It means they're going to do. A, they're going to ask us for a lot less, you know, for what we don't want to do and a lot of stuff. But um, we've got to, I think, uh, you know, sort of work with them to manage their emergence in such a way that, you know, we, we have those kind of relations with the Western European powers, right? We have the, that kind of relationship with all the NATO powers, including Turkey. These countries do what they want, and do what they need to do. And they have independent policies, but in the end, we're all on the same side on the biggest picture issues. And that's the arrangement we need to uh, develop with our Gulf Arab friends. And there's no reason why we can't. It's, it's perfectly straightforward. By the way, we have that relationship with Israel, too. But we don't have it with uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, because I, I think Americans have been used to thinking of them as protectorates or as very obnoxious members of Congress put it after October 5th, client states. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Very obnoxious, very insulting. Right? Well, they're not client states. If they ever were, they're certainly not now. And there is no obstacle to having a- excellent partnership with countries that are more you know, independent of our influence than these countries have been in the past. And that has benefits as well as costs. To, mm-hmm. to the United States. It's, it's In the end, it's a more healthy relationship, frankly. It's a good thing. Uh, I, I really think if we ma- all manage it properly, we'll all be much better off. Mm-hmm. Hussein Ibish, senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, weekly columnist for Bloomberg and The National. Also a really great follow on Twitter. Hussein, you're one of my favorite followers on Twitter. You can follow him at IBISH blog. Uh, Hussein, thank you so much. This was wonderful. 
Thanks, Lucian. Thanks, Richard. I really appreciated it. It's great. And uh, hope to come back sometime real soon. That was our conversation with Hussein Ibish. We thank Hussein for his time. Just such a brilliant guy and really, really informative. Richard, well done. Wow. I mean, if you want a primer on U.S.-Saudi relations over the last uh, period, and also, you know, extending to a broader time, time range, that was it. That's so concise, so well thought up, so well organized. Uh, this is, it was really, like I said, you'd sit and, watch, sit and listen to that discussion, and I hope a lot of people do, and you're going to have a grasp and an understanding of the relationship that you just can't, you know, sort of gain without a lot of reading and research and that sort of thing. But here it is in an hour conversation with Hussein, really, really exemplary, superb effort. Mm-hmm. Like they say, Richard, you never work a day in your life if you love what you do. And I yeah. think Hussein very much loves what he does, just as we love what we do with the 966. This isn't work for us. We're having a ton of fun, and that was a ton of fun. So thank it you was. to Hussein, and thank you to everybody listening. And you can find these interviews, conversations, segments that we're about to do as well on YouTube broken down. So uh, very easy to get to what you want. But yeah, check that out. And again, listen to Hussein's first appearance on our program, which took place in October. We had him on to discuss the U.S.-Saudi visit. Um, it was it October, Richard? Um, uh, this July, the July, Biden, July. Biden okay. visit to Saudi. Yeah, Biden visit, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, check that out. It's on our YouTube channel as well. Richard, it's time. For Saudi in a minute. You'll look. <laughs> <laughs> all righty then hey we did a big segment on this not a big segment but the yellow was extended last week mm-hmm. and it's going to be the never-ending story that gives you know and, and you you referred to the kardashians and, and in terms of publicity attention it's probably going to rival that yep this is a variation on that uh messi and ronaldo likely to meet and friendly in saudi arabia french champions paris saint-germain have confirmed plans for a mid-season trip to the Middle East. PSG will leave France on January 17th and visit Doha and Qatar, and then Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, where they will play a friendly match at King Fahad Stadium on January 19th. Recent Al Nasser signing, Cristiano Ronaldo, is expected to play for the Saudi All-Star 11, while Lionel Messi will likely line up for PSG. I mean, this is the big... So, yes, just stepping back to the little intro there, this is sort of the big social sports story happening in Saudi Arabia right now. Um, And for a lot of reasons, one is that Ronaldo and his girlfriend slash wife. uh, (laughs) No, uh, whatever. Yeah, they're not married, um, are now living in Riyadh. So they're sort of like local celebrities and. People are trying to emulate his fashion and her fashion, Georgiana, Georgina, I think it is. Um, Rodriguez. Yeah, so they're like little local celebrities. That's why we sort of reference it to it as Kardashians. But this is a, I mean, after the World Cup, this is the next big thing in soccer to happen globally, which is the facing off of Ronaldo and Messi in Riyadh. And that's really, really cool. Um, Ronaldo was suspended for two days, two games, excuse me, for a... I think stealing or taking somebody's camera that uh, put it in his Slapping face. Slapping it out of his hand. Yeah. 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 So he's, he's just now starting to get kitted out and playing for Al Nasser. So, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people are going to watch this. I don't know what channel it'll be on in the U.S., but I think there'll be a lot of globally interested viewers, even for a friendly. Listen to us. We're going native. You kitted out. Kitted out. We should, we should refer to matches on a pitch. 
matches yeah. on a pitch. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, just like and our somebody podcast, got knackered. Richard, that, that's not <laughs> we don't have stops and starts on the podcast. We just let it roll. Is just like football, soccer. Is that a football soccer term, knackered? <laughs> um, I think that's, maybe the fans got knackered. Yeah. Is there, uh, is there a special term for fans? Probably not, you know. Hooligans? But, yeah. yeah. It depends on where you are. Um, um, no, I, I just, I think I like the story, Richard. I think it's going to be cool to see them play. Um, and it's exciting. It's really exciting for people living in Riyadh right now to have such a superstar playing soccer locally. It's exciting for the league. There's so much more money to be made off of their presence there. Uh, Ronaldo and his girlfriend that it's just like, I mean, it's a mega story right now. And in fact, you and I, because we monitor U S Saudi relations very closely and we monitor really Saudi Arabia in the news. In, across the world, if you sort of like take a step back, this is the number one story by far, just as golf was the number one story by far for a long time. And, you know, it's a little silly, but sure. it's well, what people well, care yeah, about. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is a big deal, but this is kind of cool. The backstory of this is this is part of uh, the Riyadh season. Mm-hmm. So, so this is, you know, the Riyadh season is a five month event and it's just huge with massive numbers of people and visitors coming to Riyadh for any number of events and, and exhibits and, and concerts and obviously major, major games. I mean, Lionel Messi and, uh, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, that's outstanding. And um, I guess there was a, an auction. They put up, up an auction for a golden ticket. So the golden ticket holder, gets to meet all the star players. So this is includes, they get to go to the game, obviously, and they're probably on the sideline. They may be in the you know team huddle, who knows? <clears throat> they meet Messi, they meet Ronaldo, they meet Mbappe, they meet Neymar. Neymar. Uh, they line up along the winning side on the official team photo, uh, gala lunch, dressing rooms with both teams. Um, so there was an auction and that golden ticket went to a Saudi tech company for... Two point five million dollars. That seems reasonable compared uh, with all that access you're getting. Um, they should make a documentary or some sort of live TV show about that because that would be amazing. I forgot that Mbappe is going to be on is on PSG. Yeah, is, That's amazing. It is. Yeah. And and anyway, just to finish that, that, that so that two point five million dollars goes to charity. They, they it, you know it's a national platform for charitable work. They're the Hassan platform. So it goes to that. Also, I wanted to fix. I want to clarify something. I made a mistake last week. When we were talking about this, our team, Alfaya, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, and, and Almajma is in fact in the first division in Saudi. It's in the in the Champions League, and Al Nasser is leading the division right now. They're uh, they're twelve, they're nine, one, and two. Alfaya, unfortunately, is lagging. It's sixteen team division. They're uh, they're tied at uh, twelve, uh, at three six and three yeah well uh, you know for longtime fans of alfaya richard um we should be calling them by their nickname the orange or the mills of sudair which is what they are so for the mills of sudair you know it's a tough league and the league is up and coming we've got a scrappy club so yeah, no, I mean, but um, great cr- clarification. The 966 is all about getting the record straight one way or the exactly. other. They are first not, division, yeah. <laughs> but as you say. And they, yeah. you know, so, so you know, it's nice 
we're underdogs, but you know, they are scrappy and hopefully management has a plan going mm-hmm. forward. Well, they're going to have to stop it up because we've got some big spenders. We've got an arms yeah. race going on here in the league. So um, it would be nice I, to see them do that. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a little concerned because it was a rumor they were, they were courting Wayne Rooney. Mm. Yeah. It was retired six years ago, which was five years, four years too late. <laughs> yeah and they also approached me about being coach and uh i just don't have time just like yeah, so our 2.45 million dollar bid fell short for the golden ticket i guess well, that, uh, you know we really should have a ted lasso saudi arabia version mm-hmm. you know so you know you should go off and find great success in in uh in Riyadh or in al-mujma actually with al-faya that would be amazing yeah and al-mujma yeah yeah two hours north so Cool. Yeah. But very, very, very exciting times for Saudi football with all joking aside. And this is going is. to be fun Absolutely. to watch them play. I mean, this is a, a superstar matchup, like you mentioned with Mbappe there as well. So just really cool and re- re- really cool for anybody that goes gets to go see it. And very cool for the deep pocketed tech uh, company that shelled out $2.5 million to yeah. get that access. That sounds exactly. awesome. You know, it's impressive when Neymar is like, you know, an afterthought. Yeah. Yep. So. Very impressive. Richard, yellow number two, Saudi Arabia says this year's Hajj will return to pre-COVID levels, which is awesome. Islam's at annual Hajj pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia will return to pre-pandemic levels this year after restrictions saw the annual religious commemoration curtailed over concerns about the coronavirus, authorities say. This has, Richard, been a long time coming, um, but safety first. And this is really very good news for Saudi Arabia. You know, it's funny, Saudi's obviously been on a roll economically, but, and these decisions that they took. So 2019, they had 2.4 million people do the Hajj. 2020, obviously lockdowns, you know, fewer than a thousand residents, Saudi Saudi residents went. And then last year, 2021, 60,000, you know, with with significant uh, restrictions on age and that sort of thing. So you're right. It was, these were responsible health decisions, uh, but uh, you know the, the Hajj and, and Umrah are significant money makers for Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> the you know real uh, you know, a, a significant part of their GDP, and so you know they they gave the, that revenue up in, in the interest of good health decisions, which is the right thing to do. Public health. Mm-hmm. But here we are, you know, the, the economy is rolling as it is. This will be a nice little, you know, return to that revenue pump. And also, I think in the interim, when we're talking 2019 was the last time you had a full contingent of, of pilgrims come for the Hajj. Um, the environment has changed a bit. Saudi Arabia, they have a different platform in terms of how they, how uh, pilgrims, you know, book their trips and book their lodging, that sort of thing. Saudi Arabia has put in a boatload of investment in terms of trying to get them to stay a little bit and spend some money outside of their pilgrimage. So it's, uh, I'm sure people in Saudi are excited about this. Yeah. And money into the logistics side as well. They're investing into some AI tech to make the experience safer and, and more comfortable for those who are doing it. Um, it really was shocking. Um, everything was really weird, Richard in the pandemic globally, but um, you really saw photos. I mean, it's the largest annual human migration um, in the world. So yeah. the year of the pandemic, 2020, you saw photos of just, you know, basically a completely empty Hajj. That, that was um, jarring. You know, it was just like 
just shocking. Um, something that would have been shocking before the pandemic. So it's good to see it back. Um, yeah. it's really good to be back, Richard. It's good to have the shots in us and, and, uh, you know, kind of get back to some semblance of normal. Saudi Arabia has really been ahead of it on that with, you know, Absher and Talakana, um, all these apps they had to sort of manage it. Um, and Richard, we're working on a conversation coming up with a, a guest who can talk a little bit about that, which is exciting. So, uh, stay tuned to the 966 for yeah. that, but good, good on Saudi Arabia and, and, um, congrats to them on this. Saudi Arabia is mild and forms JV with a PIF public investment fund to invest in mining assets abroad. The Saudi Arabian mining company, the Gulf's largest miner, said on Wednesday it agreed to form a joint venture with the Kingdom's Sovereign Wealth Fund to invest in mining assets globally. Aden will own 51% of the venture, while the public investment fund will own 49%, the company said in a regulatory filing. Hmm. This is coming along the side, uh, the sidelines of the Future Minerals Forum, which took place in Riyadh this week. And uh, Richard, we had actually when we started this podcast just a little bit over a year ago, I and somebody were to tell me that you guys really talk a lot about mining and minerals. I would be like, well, I don't really know anything about that sector. And I feel like we have just had a really good, consistent coverage of the sector, um, just with everything, just because there's so much going on. Um, but this is very interesting because this is the first foray that I've seen. And please correct me if I'm wrong of the PIF getting into this sector. Um, it's mostly been, uh, Ma'adin and the minerals, uh, ministry of mineral and, uh, industry and mineral resources, I should say. Um, there haven't been a lot as far as I could see of PIF investments into mining and minerals. So, uh, this was significant for that reason. Agreed. It, and it's, um, it's interesting how they go about that. This is a good, in the, in the suicide review today, we, we cited a, a financial times piece on this, which is good. And the piece, one of the aspects of the piece is saying they're actually, uh, understating how much they're planning to invest 3.2 billion is what they're talking about, but that it's going to be bigger than that. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting, uh, and it was a, a uh, and it was our quoted today um, from that article. And this is what it said that quote, the strategy of the fund has parallels with Japanese trading houses, which took equity stakes in mining projects during the country's post-war industrialization to supply manufacturers. You see Saudi Arabia in other sectors, <laughs> electronic vehicles, um, a lot of uh, energy and petrochemical related industries Um going out and investing in companies they think they have promising technology in order to support domestic uh, manufacturing industrial sectors and this is what this fund is going to be doing you know they they have they quite specifically state and I, and I have to pull it up here but uh they what they're looking at is the fund will be used to take equity positions in existing assets or existing companies that can provide the offtake metal we need for development in the kingdom. It will initially be to invest in iron, ore, copper, nickel, and lithium sectors as a non-operating partner taking minority equity positions. So as with so many things in Saudi Arabia, it's done in terms of PIF and its global investments. It's intended to have a direct feedback and connection in a supporting role for what they want to accomplish domestically. Mm -hmm. Yep. They've got that, um, 
mandate by Vision 2030, or I guess the goal from Envision 2030, the Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources to set up 36,000 factories by 2030, and they're really only about a third of the way there. So there's some tie-in with that. Um, Interestingly as well, Richard, this was another sidelines of the Future Minerals Forum news story, but Madden also agreed to acquire a 9.9% stake in uh, Ivanhoe Electric, which is an American minerals exploration and development firm. So uh, this was, I mean, the Future Minerals Forum just like turbocharges the deals in this sector. And this was a big one this year. We actually talked about it two weeks ago, I believe, as a little, uh, maybe it was last week, as a little, hey, this is happening. There's going to be a lot of stuff coming yeah. out of it. And uh, it That was delivered. my one big thing. I think it was my one big thing. Was it, it, was it your one big thing? It, it might have been. You know, it, it all blends together. I, yeah. Well, I've taken a lot of hits on the head. So, I mean, <laughs> I would not be surprised <laughs> if I'm the one that's wrong, wrong here. So, uh, Richard, uh, yellow number four. Saudi Arabia includes Daria tourism projects in the PIF's portfolio. This is really interesting. Uh, Saudi Arabia has included a Daria tourism project uh, in the portfolio of the PIF um, to improve investment efficiency and public-private cooperation. This is according to the SPA, the uh, State News Agency of Saudi Arabia. The development of Daria, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, was previously under the Daria Gate Development Authority, which will continue its supervision, the SPA said. And this is based on news from an announcement by the Saudi Crown Prince. No, so this is what uh, I went down a black hole on this one because I wanted to start. We've done this before, but trying to really get a handle on, on what the Giga projects are. Mm hmm. Because it's interesting. So as it's as as the the blurb said, this is you know the fifth one to be under PIF's purview. And and but there's a bunch of others. So it's interesting to understand what's what, where's what, who's doing what, because it's not entirely clear. And and I want to do a one big thing on that at some point. But so as my understanding, and I tried to do a list, and you can help me forget these, you know, get to these things. There's Daria, the, the PIF has direct involvement, supervision, and Daria, obviously Neom, Red Sea Development, which is now Red Sea Development Company. And so that's Amala and the Red Sea uh, Development. I mean, Amala and the Red Sea, those two major, major you know, resort tourism destinations on the Red Sea, Kadia and Roshan, Roshan, the kingdom's largest residential property developer. But, and I will get to this, I hope you know, in some future iteration, uh, our friend, uh, uh, Faisal Durrani with Knight Frank, who does tremendous work. And when we cite him frequently and Knight Frank frequently, apparently Knight Frank is following 15 giga projects in Saudi Arabia. And I, I won't name them all here. We'll do this some other time, but, uh, the, the extent and the ambition is just mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're talking about, okay, that's, you know, five with, with P- PIF, but that's, that only covers a fraction, you know, some percentage of the total number of giga mega projects. Um, they're enormous. And like I said, this will be an upcoming one big thing. Just honestly, I need to do it so I can understand and get a grasp of all this going on. But the, the scope and the range and the depth and the level of investment is just extraordinary. Yeah. It's interesting too. Roshan is not a project. It's a, you know, organization essentially a huge in, contractor. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So they're they're doing stuff all around. So that 
it separates itself from the five that you mentioned there. I am interested in the other 10 that Knight Frank identifies, um, which I'm, I'm sure are there, but I mean, five and 15 are very different. I, I, the whole thing's a giga project really, but I mean, um, <laughs> you know, like so it. it's like, um, but yeah, it's very interesting. And we will be diving into that in the coming weeks. Um, Richard, there was a great piece out this week with Knight Frank, um, with Faisal Durrani actually quoted uh, from Knight Frank. Um, there's a lot going on in, in the real estate development sector. It's something we're going to be tackling in the next few weeks. So again, stay tuned to the 966. Uh, there's a lot going on in Saudi real estate right now. Absolutely. Um, number five, uh, visitors to Saudi Arabia spent $7 billion in six months. Uh, visitors to Saudi Arabia spent $7.19 billion during the first six months of 2022, making tourism one of the king's most promising sectors. The Ministry of Investment said 3.6 million foreign tourists visited the kingdom during the second quarter of the year, greatly contributing to a plan to diversify sources of income as part of Vision 2030. 3.6 million foreign tourists in the yeah. first half of, of 2022. Did you ever think you'd hear that? Well, I, I, uh, not, a, not necessarily about I mean, that. Not number, us, because we're paying attention, but I mean, just yeah. as, a, as a general observer of Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's, it's just, just to follow on to that. I mean, it's just, this is, a, this is action now on something that was promised and seemed kind of, you know, absurd or very difficult to achieve when it was first announced, these large tourism ambitions. They knew that a lot of things, Saudi officials knew that a lot of things had to happen for this to be realized and they're not there yet to the goals that they've stated but i mean that's and you can see it when you go over there now it's just completely there are a lot of foreign tourists there, there are all these destinations across the kingdom not just riyadh or the main cities are are opening up and seeing a lot of people visiting them um it it's amazing i mean they, they've this is something they've wanted and they're actually seeing success on it now they're not fully to the goal yet but i mean the progress has got to be very encouraging to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and, and other Saudi leaders. Uh, we've talked about it and we feel like, you know, 2023, we'll, we'll start seeing some of the fruits of what's been shown. Um, and and uh, this is just really encouraging because this is the plan and this is real progress. And, it, you know, you go back to, you know, uh, Field of Dreams, you know, build it and they will come. Mm -hmm. And they're building it and people are coming. And it's not just the, the money that, tourists are spending there it's the fact that saudi arabia has a 15 percent vat so all the dollars that are being spent at from foreign tourists you know you tack on an extra 15 percent for a vat that's real revenue for the government that is not oil revenue so it's it adds to the bottom line and that's obviously why they're they're very interested in nurturing and and developing this sector um yeah i mean we've talked about it on this show i mean tourism is 10 to 15 percent of global gdp mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, just, just billions and billions of dollars. And now Saudi Arabia is starting to get a little bit of that. And that's been part of the plan. That's very exciting. They're hoping this is just the beginning too. So that, that is very exciting. Um, Richard Yella, number six, we did kind of rip through these today. We're not uh, usually this done. efficient, but um, it's very good. Um, Saudi Arabia aims to create a formula one hub in the kingdom. This was very interesting. Saudi Arabia signed a 10-year contract with Formula One that will see teams race in Jeddah for a few more years before a brand new complex in Qadiyah becomes the country's permanent F1 venue. But Prince Khalid bin Sultan Al Faisal, president of the Saudi Automobile and Motorcycle Federation, wants to take the kingdom's involvement in motorsport 
to the next level by establishing in the future a veritable hub similar to the racing nerve center located in the UK. This is according to F1i.com. He said, quote, we want to create a hub. Um, we have big companies that can help the future of motorsport. Um, we're talking with Stannis Ellsberg, who's uh, written some really interesting articles on sports washing. Mm-hmm. And he just uh, published, and hopefully he'll, he'll come on probably in February is the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a tremendously, uh, you know, he's done some, two really good articles on sports washing, quote unquote sports washing. And, and he talks about uh, how so much of Saudi Arabia's investment is, in, is, is intended to support uh, a larger ecosystem and this is an example of it. I mean, the, the Saudi Arabia has been pinged significantly. You know, it's got a ten-year, six hundred fifty million dollar deal with Formula One motor racing. And, you know, they've had two now, you know, F one events. No, the second one's upcoming, right? They had one last year. So they had one last year, and then yeah, this is the second. Second one's upcoming, and as you as as the blur mentioned, we you know eventually end up at Kadia. But that doesn't, by the way, that that deal with. Uh, Formula One doesn't include Aramco has a 400, you know, 400 to 500 million deal over the course of 10 years to, in terms of advertising, you know, so the, the investment is huge. Um, and, and again, this is one of the fun things about this show. I didn't realize, you know, once you get into this, so you learn things. All right. So in terms of the F1 stable, there are 10 teams and each team has two drivers. So you have 20 drivers. So 10 teams, um, and Saudi Arabia has taken significant investment positions in two of them, in McLaren and in Aston Martin. $750 million in 2021 to McLaren, uh, $95 million, and they own like just under a 20% stake in Aston Martin in 2022. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're investing in these companies, these racing uh, operations, and as uh, as you quoted, as Prince Khalid bin Sultan Al Faisal, as you quoted, I mean, it's a twenty year program. Saudi Arabia's, you know, we 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 want to we want to launch it now, but we're looking at twenty years. You know, invest in infrastructure, uh, build academies. You know, eventually develop Saudi teams with Saudi drivers. And he says, quite frankly, he says, look, it's you know, it's a long way away, 2030, 2035, 2040. But you know, that's the plan. That's where we're headed. Um, I guess what I'm saying is is you know, the, the, you just can't simply dismiss this as sports, sports washing. You know, they're, they're using this to build a whole uh, automotive ecosystem and a sporting universe in Saudi Arabia um, that, you know, is part of their quality of life as well as part of their, you know, larger vision 30 purposes. Mm-hmm. Oh, really good point. I mean, the only thing that I really have to add to this is how excited I am for Kadia to, come online because there's going to be so much stuff going on there, including a very sweet golf course, Richard, as I understand it. Jack Nicholas designed apparently, but you know, Kadia is kind of funny because that's one of those by all reports, that's a giga project that is struggling. Hmm. You know, it hasn't really gotten out of the gates really quickly. I mean, you, you, you you know, there's like red sea, you know, there's, it has seemed to have moved along at a nice pace. Uh, and it's hitting its benchmarks. You're not hearing the same thing out of Kadia, which doesn't yeah. doesn't mean maybe that you know we probably should explore it further. But I'm hoping I'm hoping Kadia comes online, you know, on target uh, and on time. But 
hard to tell right now. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I mean, Red Sea has just been on fire and you have John Pagano, who's just so dynamic, um, seemingly in the news every single day. Um, the good know, story to tell. Good story to tell. They've been uh, they've changed the name of the company so that they can start looking at investments abroad, something that at least I didn't see coming. Um, th- there's just so much going on there. And all you hear about is progress at a schedule. And John Pagano sort of leading that sort of he's very media savvy. Yeah. Um, I, you're right. I've not heard much out of Kadia, um, but I am <laughs> awaiting that golf course. So any updates <laughs> that anybody might have can send my way. That would be awesome. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, but you know, so hopefully it all come together. It's just uh, that one's uh, that one's been a little more opaque than the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did go to a golf course outside of Riyadh in uh, November, which I did not know existed, to be honest. And, which one? Um, I can't remember. I think it's the golf course in Riyadh and they're juicing it up um, and making it 18 holes, adding real grass. It's been there for forever. We will circle back on this in our next episode because uh, yeah. I want to get that right. But um, yeah, it was honestly pretty cool. Um, there's I know that they're doing major renovations, too, as well. It's all done with Golf Saudi and obviously the PIF. So um yeah, Kadia. Uh, let's see if we can get an update on that. I've seen a lot online of, you know, um, hey, these are some construction updates, but you're right, Richard. It's not like Red Sea, or at least doesn't seem like it. The other thing that I've uh, that has been a little overlooked, and it's on me because I'm a big fan of it. And I guess we need we'll do something next week is the Dakar Rally, which is ongoing right now. Yes. Yes, let's do something on that next week. We're really pushing a lot off to next week, Richard. Because we have so much. There's several. Have there's so, so much. much going on. Yeah, absolutely. But um, it's all good. I, I agree. I've been following that a little bit closer this year after sort of seeing it last year and all the cool images and videos that have come out of it. It's so awesome. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, Richard, episode seventy-one. Well in done. T- in the bag. Another. Jeez, uh, we're doing. You know. Well job. Well, well done. I think we're just plugging along. I feel like we're getting better and better. Our guests have just been phenomenal. And this is obviously I'm a homer. I mean, you know, I'm quite partisan, but I mean, uh, I find the guests very interesting and, and, and we're covering such a wide range. And uh, I think, you know, we'll just keep plugging. I'm really pleased. We've got a really great one coming up next week. We won't, we won't uh, spoil the surprise, but a really good one coming up next week. So We will get to work on that. Richard, thank you very much. Good job. I will see you next week. Absolutely. Another good one.